Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 to 42. This is the word of God. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before bound up in their cloaks, being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Pam. Friends, I forgot to announce a reminder that Currently, the Indonesian translation is happening in, in the choir room in the back. Uh, so um, um, just to let you know that if you have friends or family that want to hear the sermon in Indonesian because that's their first language or what they're more comfortable with, uh, from now on, on the, every second service, we're going to have the Indonesian translation happening there. Okay. We pray one more time before we start. Father, no... Sermon exposition, no matter how well done, can change hearts. We approach this passage with that dependence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us for the past few weeks, past few months really, you know that we're going through a series through the life of Moses and that we're taking uh, parts in the book of Exodus uh, to display to you Moses' life. And we've preached actually all of chapter 1 into chapter 12, every single verse, uh, all the plagues, plagues 1 to 9 uh, uh, so, so far. And right now we're at the climactic 10th plague. And remember, God's done some pretty bizarre things here to Egypt because Egypt refuses to let God's people go, right? God turned the water of the Nile into blood. God sent hail. God sent locusts. But the Egyptians, Pharaoh, won't budge. He remained stubborn. And now, look at verse 29. This is the 10th plague. Because Egypt's stubbornness, God in this final plague took away all of Egypt's firstborn sons. And finally, after 430 years of slavery, Israel was free. And that's what this passage is about. Israel's first step 
out of slavery, hit their first step into freedom, the precise moment of their redemption. Now, if you're a Christian here, some of you might be able to relate uh, with this experience uh, because some of us here, I know, claim that we have a clearer sense of when that moment was. You know, when, when it was exactly that you received Christ as Lord and Savior, when it was you took your first breath, your first step as a redeemed man. You know, some of us claim that we know the exact time, October 16th, 2006, 6.47 p.m. You know, during the fourth stick of saute, you know, before I took the second bite, I came to Christ. You know, that's kind of, you have this precise exact time of when that moment was, which by the way, you might be generally accurate, although it's hard to be that precise, I think, but some of us here may have a clearer testimony like that. Like you, you generally know kind of maybe around this area. I feel like I maybe have a, a general sense of when that is, but other people, not quite sure of the exact date and time, when it was Christ redeemed them, when it was they were brought out of death into life, and that's fine too. Like my wife, Tati, she grew up in a church-going family. She's always went to church, always knew she trusted Christ, and not quite sure when it was that she actually was redeemed out of her slavery of sin into everlasting life through Christ, but, but she is now, and she has the fruits of the Spirit, and she's living with Christ now, although she can't pinpoint exactly when that was, which, by the way, is a prayer for both of my kids. I pray that they don't know a day without Christ that they will always know Christ. And whatever your testimony may be, okay, if you're a Christian today uh, and however clear or unclear you felt like that moment was for you, this passage zooms in on that moment when someone first left their old life into everlasting communion with God. And there's three things I want to point out about how it was Israel left Egypt, okay? It was with sudden dignity. It was with a call for purity. And it was with a committed God. Israel left Egypt with sudden dignity, with a call for purity, with a committed God. First point, leaving Egypt with sudden dignity. Okay, so Pharaoh, for nine plagues, held on to his pride, wouldn't let Israel go. But after this last one, he was done for. Now this plague, yes, ripped apart Egypt's future military might, right? Because all their sons were taken away. But, but it did more than that. This plague also ripped Pharaoh's very heart. Remember after the seventh plague, a few weeks back, we talked about God warning Pharaoh that, hey, if you continue in your stubbornness, the next set of plagues literally says this, it's going to hit your heart. That's what God warned Pharaoh in plague number seven. And it did, didn't it? Friends, I have children. And if you take my heart and you carve it open, you'll see them there. This plague hit Pharaoh in the heart. Two sermons ago, we mentioned how this last plague might seem overly harsh and unfair, but it's actually an act of fair justice. How so? Because remember, Egypt didn't only enslave Israel for 430 years. Can't imagine all the kind of cruelty and murders that happened then. But remember what, what Egypt did to Israel in Exodus chapter 1. Egypt killed all of Israel's who? Male children. Egypt drowned them in the Nile. This last plague they received, it, it is, it's heart-wrenching, but it was not unjust. Now, 
what do we see happening here immediately after God struck Egypt's firstborn sons? What, what do we see happening? There's an immediate reversal of status. It's, it's the immediacy, the abruptness, the suddenness is what I don't want us to miss today uh, from our passage. Okay, first, there's, a, there's an immediate lowering of Pharaoh's status. Okay, there's an immediate lowering of Pharaoh's status. Look at what Pharaoh did in verse 30. He woke up in the middle of the night. Now, that might not seem a big deal to us, but to see a pharaoh running around in his PJs back then, that was a big deal. You know, back then, pharaohs was treated like gods. They must present themselves to the world like, like their deity, right? So the first thing that uh, they do after they wake up, this is actually is what happens. They are bathed by a whole team of people. Make sure spick and clean, right? And then after uh, pharaohs bathe, He's oiled down by someone with the title, this is an actual title, the chief of the scented oils and paste for rubbing down his majesty's body. That's somebody's whole career. That's what they do, okay? Then, after being washed down and, 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 and rubbed down, Pharaoh's dressed with majesty and adorned with all this jewelry, and, and only when his image lives up to the divine status he claims to have, then and only then, is he seen by others and presented to the world. But now, what do you see him doing? After God delivered this final plague, he's running around in his PJs. No makeup on, no jewelry on, revealing the truth. He's human after all. Then on top of that, look at verse 31. He had to invite Moses and Aaron back to his house and beg them for mercy. Up, up, go out from here. There's an urgency there. There's an immediacy there. Up, go, leave now. Don't delay. And, and by the way, as you do that, can you ask God to have mercy on me? Can you ask God to leave me alone? Bless me also, says in the end of verse 32, I've had enough. Get this, a ruler who claimed to be God adorned in majesty and splendor, now in his PJs, begging for mercy from an 80-year-old shepherd in his own house. Pharaoh's status was lowered, but contrast that with Israel's status that was suddenly dignified. Look at verse 33. Look at the suddenness of it, the abruptness of how Israel left Egypt. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They were literally pushed out by the Egyptians. Verse 34 says, their bread was still unleavened. They weren't even done baking yet. They had to carry the kneading bowls on their shoulders. Imagine, it's like you being kicked out suddenly by your landlord in the middle of the night. You had no time to get anything but your kneading bowls or your KitchenAids, whatever it is you use to bake bread with, and you just, that's all you can get, and you just ran out because you had nothing, you had no time. There's an immediacy, there's a suddenness and an abruptness to it. But also, notice how they left. Not only with immediacy, but with dignity. Look at all God gave them in verse 35 to 36. All the riches of Egypt the silver and gold. Now, let's not fall into health, wealth, prosperity here, okay? The silver and gold was not for their own use. It was meant to be used as the material that will eventually uh, be used to make God's temple with, okay? This is for worship purposes, not for personal use. The point here isn't that Israel's sudden increase of personal wealth. The point here is the contrast of how immediately the status changed between Egypt and Israel. Israel is now all of a sudden dignified, and Egypt was humiliated. And then, look at verse 37. There's more. Where did Israel leave from? Israel left from the city of Ramesses. Ramesses was Egypt's front gates. 
Here's a picture. As soon as God struck the firstborn sons of Egypt, immediately Israel's status changed from slave to free, from shame to dignity. They immediately left their old world, their old way of life, to a new one. Not with their tails tucked behind their legs through the back gates, with their heads held up high through the front door. You see that? But we can't miss another major point God's making here. Look at how passive Israel was in this process of redemption. They literally did nothing. First, they watched God as he struck God's, uh, Egypt's firstborn sons. And then it's as if they were even able to blink. The Egyptians kind of just pushed them out. Up, get out of here, go. In a split second, you know, you can imagine their hair is still messy. Their kids are barely awake. They're still trying to make sense of what happened. All of a sudden, in a split second, their status of 430 years was changed. Slaves no more. Free men adorned with dignity and honor, finding themselves standing outside of Egypt's gates, looking around in the middle of the night, saying, What just happened? <laughs> what just happened? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a medical doctor and a well-known Reformed preacher in the 1900s, he'd do this thing where after every sermon, he would go up to a visitor in his church and he would ask them just straight in the eye, are you a Christian? I might start doing that. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and, and after every time he asked that, the majority answer that he gets is this. I'm working on it. I'm so close to getting there, I'm working on it. And he would respond, son, based on your answer, you have no idea of what being a Christian means. What's he getting at? Well, it's, it's painted here in our passage today. The picture of becoming a Christian is not someone who works on it for a long time, you know, and then after putting enough hours in it, after feeling like you're ready for it, after feeling like you're, you're prepared for it, you kind of know what life is going to look like. You know, I feel like I'm good enough now. I feel like I'm not going mess to mess up too much. I feel like, I can, okay, I can commit now. Okay, I've, I've decided it's time. I will now allow Christ to enter into my life. No, that is not the picture of conversion. The picture of conversion is what we see in this passage. Is God sweeping you up out of your dead slumber, saying, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead. And all we do is, is wake up to a dungeon flamed with lights, as we'll sing in our hymn later. All we find is our chains suddenly fallen off, our hearts wonderfully free, and our feet strangely rising up to follow thee. Out of the front gates of our old lives, that's what conversion is. And on the outside, we pretend like we know what happened, right? We say, I, I, I accepted Christ. That's what happened. But every now and then, I think, if we're totally honest, if we're completely honest, the redeemed man or woman, if they take a second to look around at their current life, a small part of them, I think, if they're honest, asks this question. What just happened? <laughs> What happened? This is really happening? I love Jesus now? Like, that's who I am now? <laughs> I believe in him now? I want to obey him now? Am I at church? 
Me? What's going on? What just happened? Two biblical phrases I want to teach us. Some of you may already know, and some of you may not. This is justification and sanctification. Justification is referring to that sudden moment when God redeems you. You find your heart believing in Jesus Christ. You might have researched it. You might have read books. You might have pondered upon it. But you didn't come to Christ because you had all the answers, did you? So why? There's, a, there's an immediacy to it. God sweeped you up out of our dead slumber. And then, that's justification. There, there, there's sanctification, which today is used to refer to the progression or the maturity as a redeemed, alive person. How you now live and progress as a Christian in Christ. And yes, the journey of sanctification, of growing in your Christ-likeness and character after you become a Christian, that's progressive. That's not immediate or sudden. But the initial step of being redeemed, of becoming a Christian, of having our status changed from hopeless slaves under death sentence to a free and alive redeemed new man, that is not progressive. That is decisive and immediate and sudden and abrupt. Why? Here's the answer. Because it's a received status, not an achieved one. It's immediate because it's a received status, not an achieved one. Israel received this new status by God's work of striking Egypt's firstborn sons. God initiated Israel's redemption. God changed Israel's status. God altered Israel's fate. God adorned Israel with honor and dignity. The fear of God is what caused the Egyptians to push Israel out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And that's why Christians have no room to be prideful for their salvation. You know who should be getting presents at our birthdays? Our moms. Not us. Why do we get the presents? We didn't do any work. We didn't push ourselves out. Why, why, why do we get the presents? Our moms should. You know who should be celebrated in our conversion? God. Because we did none of the work. You didn't do anything. He mercifully got me for himself. Israel was a total recipient, standing now with their old lives behind them and a vast unknown desert before them with one question in their hands. What does my new life look like from here on out? What does it look like? What am I supposed to do? And some of you here, maybe newer Christians in this room or older Christians, I've uh, been a Christian for a while, and you may still have this question. I still feel kind of new to all this, really. I'm actually very poorly prepared for any of this. All I know is that God mercifully saved me, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. Well, let's continue in our passage and see what instruction God gave Israel of how to live. Point two, leaving Egypt with a call for purity. So let's continue in our uh, passage, verse 37. Here it is. The first, the first step out of Egypt, verse 37 and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. 600,000 men does not include women and children. Estimated here, a total of 2 million people, if you count the women and the children. This is a huge exodus, okay? A lot of resources are needed. A lot of planning, perhaps, was needed, but they weren't given that. What did they have on them? Look at verse 39. Verse 39 says, if you read the end of verse 39, it says that they had no provision on them, except... For what? There's one thing they had. Unleavened bread. 
Okay, so here we see the theme of unleavened bread mentioned again. It was already mentioned in verse 34. Now it's mentioned again in verse 39. This, when the same theme comes in the span of 10 verses, we want to ask the question, why is that there? It's pretty important. Okay, why is it there? Well, I don't usually do this, but I'm about to give you a one-time exclusive baking lesson. Okay, of how to make homemade leavened bread and show you how it connects to the passage later. Leaven is yeast. And leaven or yeast in bread is what gives you that yummy fluffiness inside of the bread, okay, instead of the dough. That's why bakers go to um, supermarkets to buy yeast to put in their dough. But back then, they didn't have Harrow. They didn't have Ranch Market. So where did they go to get yeast? Here's, here's how, and this is true, okay? You'd have to catch wild yeast that's floating in the air particles, that's how they do it. How do they do that? Okay, you mix water with flour into a doughy paste. You leave it out all night for it to ferment or a few days for it to ferment. During the fermentation process, that's when the wild yeast get caught into the dough mix. Okay, and when you have enough yeast caught in the dough mix, you bake it. You mix it up, you bake it, and, and, and done. And that's how you make homemade leavened bread. See, who said reform sermons are impractical? There you have it. But to make unleavened bread, unleavened bread, it's much quicker. Okay? You just put the water and flour together, and you mix it up, you bake it, and you're done. Because you don't need to catch the wild yeast. You don't need to do that whole fermentation process. Okay, here's why that's important for the passage. Leavened bread, the one that goes through the fermentation process, that catches the wild yeast, though may taste better, it's often used back then as an analogy for impurity. Why? Well, think about it. Because it's been leavened, right? The dough has caught wild yeast from the air in order to be leavened. In other words, there is something added to the dough that is not dough. Because of that, leavened bread no longer is purely dough, and therefore it's often used back then as a symbol for impurity. So here we are, 430 years of slavery. Israel is out of Egypt. They have no idea how to live this new life they've been graciously given. They're suddenly thrusted out of Egypt, and all they had, all they had, look at verse 39, is unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not yet leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So here it is. Wide-eyed, outside of Egypt's gates, because of what just happened, asking themselves, okay, now what? And do we not as born-again Christians ask that question all the time? What's God's will for me? Now that I'm a Christian, where do I go from here? And God's answer to us is the same answer he gave Israel here in this passage. We ask, what do I do now, God? Well, Israel, look down in your hands. What do you see? Unleavened dough. There's your answer. <laughs> what do you mean? Here's my will for you. This is how you live now as a free redeemed man from here on out, remain unleavened. In other words, remain pure and holy. That's my will for you. Yep, yeah, but God, I'm, I'm talking more like, you know, how do I know who to date and marry? That's, that's more the stuff I want to know about. However you decide that, remain pure and remain holy. Okay, but like, how about my career path? You know, can I get some 
info about which career path I should take, remain pure and remain holy. God, look, I'm, I'm new to all this. this. This new life to me feels like, it feels as, as uncomfortable as facing a vast desert. What do I need to survive? Israel, church, God is saying, if you are resolved to live your life faithfully to my directions and therefore remaining pure and holy, that resolve is enough for your journey through this desert. Remain pure and holy. So, so you're saying, if I obey God and his commandments, only when I obey God and his commandments will he then help me get through the desert. That, that kind of sounds like legalism, doesn't it? That sounds like salvation by works. Doesn't, isn't, didn't you say salvation is by grace? I thought earlier in point one, we talked about how re God redeemed Israel by grace and grace alone. Yes, he did. And this call for purity and holiness after they're saved is a part of God's grace too. How so? First, let me bring it out from the text so we see it. First, it's clear. Look, look at the passage. The theme of the unleavened bread, it's sort of intertwined with Israel's redemption out of slavery. Verse 34, it was mentioned right before Israel was redeemed out of slavery. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. And then fast forward, verse 39, right after Israel was redeemed out of slavery, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. You see, in the midst of God's gracious act of redeeming Israel out of Egypt, paint the literature here. What's going on? Intertwined in that act of redemption, mixed all up in that act of gracious redemption, is the theme of unleavened bread, is the theme of remaining pure and holy and obedient to God. Meaning what? Meaning that the gracious act of God here is twofold. One, in redeeming and freeing Israel out of slavery, but two, in calling Israel to be pure and holy after they're redeemed. It's a part of God's grace. Let me share this analogy. Maybe this might help. So when Tati and I first had Elena, our first child, we didn't know this, but apparently we discovered that there exists in the medical field a document that tells you um, how you can tell whether or not a baby is healthy. It's like a, it's like a laminated document. It's there. You know, so a one-month-old, you should be able to drink milk effectively, and it should weigh this much. A, three, a healthy three-month-old should respond when you call it, uh, his or her name. You know, a, a healthy six-month-old should make, be able to make certain sounds and grab a toy and put it to one hand to another. And at around a year, year and a half, you know, you should be able to walk by then. Uh, and then, you know, further on from that, you should be able to say five discernible words, and, and, and there's this document, all these markers, and, and the, do the doctor gave us these markers, and the doctor pushed us and pushed Elena towards fulfilling them. Now, how silly would it be that when the doctor gave us those markers, we told him, that is so legalistic. I love my child, even if they can't walk or talk. What would the doctor say? Like, of course you love your child. This has nothing to do with whether or not you love your child. These aren't requirements for your child to earn your love. These are markers of what a healthy newborn human being looks like. The fact that the doctor gave us those set of markers and the fact that the doctor was spurring and training and disciplining Elena onwards to reach those markers, that's not an act of legalism. That's an act of love. That's an act of grace. The doctor wants Elena to grow into maturity and health. David Paulison, a Christian counselor, said this very clearly, and I think is really good. 
He said, God's law similarly describes how full humanness operates when walking free. God's law similarly describes how full humanness operates when walking free. When God rebirthed Israel out of Egypt, he graciously redeemed them and he graciously gave them a marker. Here is what a healthy, redeemed, and alive free man looks like. He or she looks pure and holy, more specifically later spelled out in the Ten Commandments. God's call to purity and holiness is not legalism. It's the most gracious thing God can do for these newborn people to show them what this is what health looks like. These are the markers. Strive for them. Push toward them. Cut every sin holding you back from them. Discipline yourself that you may become them. Beat your body. Make it your slave, Paul even says. Push towards purity and holiness at all costs. Why? Because you've been born again. These commandments aren't climbing instructions of how to get to God. They're not. They're health markers of how you can mature and grow. But I get the tension. And to be honest, that's my gut instinct too. Anybody that knows me knows that I tend, down to, I tend to water down the call for purity and holiness and obedience because I'm so afraid that it'll make us legalistic. For example, here's an example when I did this. Currently, we're doing elders training at CCC. And if you were at the members meeting long time ago when we first introduced elders training and what elders are all about and deacons and officers, church officers, we presented in that members meeting eldership qualifications, right? So we busted out Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we said, here's the list. Elders must be of approach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not arrogant, not greedy for gain, upright and disciplined, and that's just a few of them. There's more on that list. If you're at that members meeting, you may remember what I said right after I listed out those qualifications. The first words I said after I listed out those qualifications was this, but who can meet all those standards? They're, they're just so high, you know? Thank goodness for the cross. Elders, look at how much we fall short of these qualifications, and, and looking at these qualifications should lead us back to the gospel and to Christ. Is that true? Of course it's true. Yes, these qualifications are meant to humble us because in one sense, you don't want an elder who sees that list and goes, been all that since 2005. You know, you don't, you don't want somebody like that. You want somebody who's humble, who actually knows they don't reach up to it. But at the same time, these lists of qualifications, they were not put there primarily to humble elders. They were put there primarily because there were actual standards that elders are called to live up to. Same with the Ten Commandments. God didn't just put them there only to remind us of how sinful we are. Yes, that is a, uh, a use of the law that we're supposed to, these are the standards, we can never reach it on our own, and therefore that should lead us back to the gospel and to Christ. Absolutely. But they're also actual commands. They're also actual moral standards for born-again Christians to pursue and seek with all our strength and might. J.C. Ryle, in his book called Holiness, says this, to those who push back, like me, to those who push back the call toward purity and holiness under the basis of being scared that it may pull them back to legalism, like earning God's love. He says this, I don't object those pushbacks when they come from men who walk in the steps of the Apostle Paul and fight a good fight as he did against sin, the devil, and the world. 
But I never really liked such complaints when I suspect, as I often do, that they're only a cloak to cover spiritual laziness and an excuse for spiritual sloth. The devil, friends, is a sly and tricky enemy. He can use even the best desires within, within us. The best desires, desires like wanting to fight legalism. He can use even the best desires and take that momentum to create within us spiritual sloth. Let that never be the case. If you are a friend of the most holy God, you will necessarily wrestle with even the smallest of sins. But there's another fear I think we have, at least I often experience, when I try to live my life marked by purity and holiness. It's not just the fear of falling into legalism and self-righteousness and, and works righteousness and all that. It simply is just a scary thing to commit to in itself. I mean, just imagine, there was a vast unknown desert in front of these Israelites. You know what rule of life would feel safest to live by if I was facing an unknown desert? It was a rule of life that was marked not by obedience to God, but by practicality. That feels more safe to me. Not a, a rule of life marked by purity and holiness, but a, but a rule of life marked by pragmatism. That seems safer for me to travel a desert through with. Not a life where God rules it, but a life where I get to have the freedom to decide what to do and how to do it based on my perceived needs. Living life without philosophy when I'm facing a desert feels safer because I'm not dependent on anything else. I have full control over my own life. The question is, the big question is, I think for us, is how can we trust God over ourselves? How can we trust that we can follow his commandments over our own instincts and wills, okay? Well, that leads us to our last point, leaving Egypt with a committed God. Okay, last few verses of the passage, verse 40 to 41. The author repeats that God redeemed Israel that very night of the 430th year of slavery, so very precisely that night, which is according to promise, if you go back to Genesis, right? God is faithful, God did that, and then in verse 42, it tells us what the Israelites did. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So for generations, Israel passed down the story of what happened that night. You know, children after grandchildren after great-grandchildren from generation to generation, they kept telling the story, this is what happened that night. God struck down Egypt's sons so that we may be free. Now, why did Israel do that? Why did Israel retell the story for generations and generations of God striking down Egypt's sons so that they may be free? Because they realized something very important, I think. They realized that in order for Israel to have the courage to remain pure and holy and obedient to God's word in the midst of a vast, threatening desert, their hearts must be convinced that God is trustworthy. And they have to hear it over and over again. He is trustworthy. He did this for you. He killed the sons of Egypt for you so that you may be free. You know, that's how he set you free. Don't you remember what he did for you that night? Remain holy, therefore, and pure and obey him. And now, we now sit here in Jakarta, you know, 2019, asking ourselves, how does that apply to me? God never struck down Egypt's sons to free me. And you're absolutely right. He didn't. But do you know who he did strike down to free you? You know who he killed to set you free from the slavery of your sin? His own son. 
Egypt lost their sons in this plague, Pharaoh's heart was torn apart because of their own sin. But why did God the Father crucify Jesus Christ, God the Son, on the cross? Hmm? For the Father's sin? For Jesus' sin? No. God the Father struck down his only son for our sin. Do you remember what he did for you that night? Why would you trust him? Why should you obey his commands and strive for purity and holiness, even when doing so makes no sense to our sinful inclinations because he's trustworthy? Do you remember what he did for you that night? He struck down his only begotten son so that you may live he was brought low so that you may have sudden dignity. He took off his robe of majesty so that you may be clothed in glory. He was sacrificed as a criminal so that you may live free. The Father turned his face away on the cross so that he'll always look upon yours and adopt you as his own. Have we forgotten what he did for us that night? Tell me, how does somebody doubt a father who gave them his son? If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're still exploring the gospel, you're still trying to figure out what this all is about, if you're here today and you're still working on it, I'm not saying this to be mean. I promise you this is, supposed to, this is an invitation, not a jab. Stop working on it. Stop working on it. This new identity as saved, redeemed, alive. This new man is not an achieved identity. It's a received one. You can't work on it. All you can do is receive it. But, but I, I don't feel quite prepared, you might say. Join the stinking club. <laughs> no one feels prepared. Even the Israelites did it. When God's spirit makes you realize the depths of your sin and shows you the height of God's grace on the cross, ready or not, you're gonna be thrusted out of Egypt and join the rest of us, wide-eyed and confused, <laughs> trying our best to live this new life we've been graciously given. Stop working on it. Come, receive. It's done. Your sins are forgiven. You are guilty no more. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, then remain pure, remain holy, remain obedient. I'll, I'll end with an interview that I once heard between a young pastor named Kevin DeYoung and an older pastor that you might know, 65 years old, John Piper. Um, Kevin DeYoung wrote this book called The Hole in Our Holiness, and John Piper was interviewing him, and at the end of the interview, uh, John Piper asked, you know, Kevin, how did you end your book? How did your book end? Kevin said, I ended my book by letting Christians know that there is hope for you to grow in holiness. There is hope for you to grow. And right at that moment, I did not expect this, John Piper smiled and he bowed his head for about 10 seconds. That felt like 10 minutes. And then he looked back up and he said, I really needed to hear that. And I was like, John Piper, you don't need to hear anything. <laughs> you need to tell us things. He's like, no, I really needed to hear that. I'm 65 years old, and I somehow feel like some habits are just too late, too old to change. I needed to hear that, that even now, 
even as I stand closer to the finish line than I did the start. Even now, I must continue to strive valiantly towards holiness, and there is hope because Christ is in me. You have hope, Christian. Whatever habit it is, lust, anger issues, jealousies, body image insecurities, a lack of desire to study God's word, an inability to forgive. Whatever you think it is that's lodged itself too deeply in your soul, here, you have hope. Christ is in you. Push towards Christ-likeness. Bring out to the open, whatever that issue may be, because sin, like addiction, flourishes in the dark, flourishes when it's hiding. Bring out in the open. Process it with your brothers and sisters in Christ who you trust. Go back to God's word and push through towards purity and holiness. Why? Because that's who you are now. A redeemed, living, God-chasing, free man. That's who you've become. That's who you've become the second you received what he did for you on that glorious night, on that gracious cross. Let's pray. Father, we can do nothing to earn our own salvation. We can do nothing to earn your love. There is no climbing instructions vast enough to help us get to you. And that's why you came down to us and you died on the cross for us. Help us, Father, receive this mercy, this grace, so that we may be transferred from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from shame to dignity, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. And Father, after that happens, we pray you make it happen. And if it does, spur us on towards holiness. This too is grace. This too is mercy, that we may mature and push on and kill whatever sin we have hindering us, holding us back. For you are worth it. And for that is what we need most as a free human being. Help us, Father, spur us on, thrust us out of Egypt. And now that we're in a desert, wide-eyed and confused, make us love your holy law and obey it and move forward toward it as a true, healthy human being, redeemed and alive, is meant to look like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.